0: From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Children's books often contain stories that grown-ups can benefit from, too. That's certainly true of Andrea Wang's award-winning picture book, Watercress. With illustrations by Jason Chin. Andrea's book shares childhood tales of her foraging for food with her immigrant parents on the roadsides of their Ohio home. This led to an understanding of the Chinese culture of her ancestors and the sacrifices they made to give her a better future. Andrea's beautiful book inspired us to explore other immigrant stories, including that of Christina Quackenbush. Whose milkfish pop-up introduces New Orleanians to new flavors from her native Philippines. We also hear the story of Turkish natives Ozgur and Bulant Duman and their Mandeville restaurant, Duman Artisan Kitchen. We're tasting new flavors and exploring new ideas on this week's Louisiana Eats. Foraging is trending. The advent of slow food and farm-to-table movements has inspired, or maybe was inspired, by foraging. Although now it seems to have a hip connotation, searching for wild food resources was born out of necessity, using what's at hand. First-generation Asian-American Andrea Wang's first foraging experience was as bittersweet as the watercress she was gathering on the side of the road with her parents. She and illustrator Jason Chin shared with us the duality of free food and the memory of her first time gathering watercress. So watercress was growing in
1: this water-filled irrigation ditch by the side of the road in rural Ohio, and it looks like a weed to me, and it never occurred to me that it would be food until my parents stopped and made us get out and gather it. I was unhappy <laughs> doing this activity. Um, I was one of a very few Asian American families in my small town in Ohio, and I already felt like I didn't belong. So to be seen gathering you know, weeds from a ditch
0: to eat was um, a very painful experience for me. And your little brother wasn't making it any better, was he? <laughs>
1: no, he's my older brother. And yeah, the, uh, you know, he held the watercress up to my face and, you know, shook it at me because he thought this was hilarious. At the dinner table that night, my parents had cleaned and, you know, cooked the watercress and presented it. And I didn't want to eat it. I only, you know, it says in the book that I only want to eat vegetables from the grocery store. And that was so true. I wanted to be just like my, you know, um, peers who I was pretty sure had never foraged for food in their lives. I didn't want to be seen as different. And my parents were very practical and they told me, you know, it's fresh and it's free. But that word free is so loaded. It means something completely different. To me as a child um, than it did to my parents. You know, free for me was, you know, hand-me-down clothes and the furniture they used to pick up at the roadside and, you know, getting dinner out of a ditch. So um, it was not until my mother told me a story about her younger brother and growing up during the famine in China. Um, some of this is a bit fictionalized, but it's true that she did lose a younger brother. And, you know, that there was just not enough food to eat and he did not survive.
0: Were you grown up enough at that point to have that empathy and make that connection once you looked at the watercress in a different way as something that maybe had stood between your family, your forebearers and starvation?
1: I'd love to say yes, but the truth is, is that my parents kept um, Their are memories to themselves for a very long time. So my mom did not tell me the story of her younger brother until I was much older. She was trying, I think, to protect us from, you know, showing the, the difficulties that she had as a child. Um, and, you know, they're sad memories. So it wasn't until I was much, much older, even after I knew that story, um, to put it all together and sort of condense the timeline in the picture book and come to the realization of how much I appreciated my parents and felt really connected to my heritage.
0: Now, Jason, is this your first project with Andrea? Is this the first time you all have worked together?
2: Yes, it is. Our editor, Neil Porter, brought me the manuscript and asked to illustrate it. And um, I read it and I was just blown away. It's just magnificent. It's so emotionally evocative and beautifully written. And it was clear that a manuscript like this doesn't come along very often. At the same time, I was very nervous about taking it on because it's such a personal story. It's such a heavy story, but, but mostly because it was so personal and I'd be illustrating Andrea as the main character. You know, you know I always feel a lot of responsibility um, when I take on another author's project, because I'm taking their baby, I'm taking something they've put their passion into, and you know, adding my voice to it. For this project, I, I felt uh, like that to a greater degree. Luckily, our editor introduced us to each other, and we got to meet, and and I got to know Andrea, and she really is such a lovely person and put me at ease.
0: I really want to commend you. I, I don't know... Um if you had interviewed Andrea ahead of time about what it was like in her home, but you got the period so (laughs) perfectly correct from um, the Corel dinnerware uh, yes. to the Corningware that is pictured as holding this watercress. Yeah,
2: I remember it, showing a picture to Andrea. I said, I'm going to use this Corningware. Does that feel right to you? She was like, yes. <laughs> oh, good, because we had that too.
0: <laughs> it It just really um, hit a yeah. perfect time period so beautifully.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I I paid a lot of attention to all the artifacts that I put in the book because um, I wanted to use them to help set the stage for the time periods. So both in uh, 1970s in Ohio and also in the 1950s or late 50s in China.
0: And Andrea, when this is such a personal project for you being really almost a memoir, um, when you first saw the illustrations, how did they make you feel? I cried
1: <laughs> they were just so stunning and brought the book to life in a way that I never could have imagined. Um, when I wrote the story, I actually didn't think it could be a picture book because it's so emotional and so interior. Uh, I did not know how an artist would be able to depict them layers of memory, but um, the way Jason brought memory in, and you know, the, the color palette changed to denote the memory, I just was blown away.
2: I uh, thought a lot about Chinese painting actually when I was thinking about how to depict memory. And I thought about Chinese landscape paintings. And if you're familiar with them, you might know that there are often mountains shrouded in fog and clouds, um, and they use very soft edges when painting landscapes. And so I, I tried to bring some of that aesthetic into the book to represent memory uh, and give the book a, a, the same sort of dreamlike quality that I see in Chinese landscape paintings. For me personally, um, working on the project gave me an excuse to kind of return to my heritage and my roots. Here are some of my father's stories from when he was growing up, which are very similar to Andrea's stories of not wanting to eat Chinese food because he wanted to fit in, he wanted to belong in uh, America. This gave me another way to reconnect to my family's heritage and my family's story.
0: Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's being from South Louisiana. But I have not really seen many children's books that deal with Asian American children. So this is such a special book for such an important segment of our population.
1: Yes, I, you know, not only wanted to write so that Asian American children could see themselves represented in children's books, the way I didn't when I was small. Um, I wanted them to feel seen and understood. But I also wanted non Asian American readers to see the Asian American experience, I hope the book sort of humanizes the Asian American experience and, you know, helps that fear and misunderstanding when you don't know about a different culture.
2: This is, of course, Andrea's very specific story, but all of the themes in it are very universal themes of belonging, fitting in embarrassment, uh, you know, being embarrassed by your parents. I think everyone goes through that. And as we've been sharing it with people since it's come out, we've heard many, many stories of people from all walks of life that identify with it. And surprising to me, especially the foraging part of it, people who come up to us or tell us, you know, oh, my parents made me forage. And these are not Chinese people. These are people from all over uh, and all different backgrounds. That are connecting with it. So I've been just so pleased at the reception that it's had, and how many people are connecting with the story.
1: I think I just want to say that I hope this book helps families spark important conversations about where their parents and and ancestors are from, as well as to encourage them to share their own stories and create new memories.
0: Well, I am hoping that a lot of people share this with their children. It's a beautiful book, and I I just love it. Congratulations.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Thank you. Really enjoyed being here. That was Andrea Wang and Jason Chin, author and illustrator of Watercress. watercress ever found its way onto your dinner table stay tuned and we'll tell you why it just might be your next superfood Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness always made with just three simple ingredients aged red cayenne peppers distilled white vinegar and salt nothing artificial Crystal Hot Sauce how New Orleans does flavor from Rouse's Markets synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways Rouse's Markets tastes like home and from Camellia Brand Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker, Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Has watercress ever found its way onto your dinner table? Move over, arugula. Watercress just may be the world's next superfood. This aquatic flowering plant grows wild in fresh stream waters all across Asia, Europe, and the Americas. It's a member of the cruciferous family, but when nutritionally compared to kale, broccoli, and Brussels sprouts, it absolutely tops the charts. One cup of watercress is less than four calories, but includes chart-topping amounts of vitamins K, C, E. A, and B6, along with calcium, magnesium, potassium, and phosphorus. It's said to prevent cancer, lower blood pressure, maintain bone health, and it's an anti-inflammatory. But most importantly, it's delicious. Its peppery flavor adds a spicy accent to salads, stir-fries, and as a substitute for lettuce on sandwiches and burgers. Andrea Wang's parents were really on to something when they stopped to forage watercress on the Ohio roadsides of her childhood. Give watercress a try at your dinner table soon. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Within the pages of The New Filipino Kitchen are a collection of 30 recipes and stories from expat Filipinos who have preserved their food memories and brought recipes from home into a new context. New Orleanian Christina Quackenbush of Milkfish contributed one of her own recipes to the book. She joined us in the Louisiana Eats studio to discuss her fascinating story and how the book came to be.
3: Well, Filipino food has been having a hard time with identity, um, especially now that it's been coming out um, all across the United States. One thing about Filipino food is it has so many influences. So even though it's uh, the book is Filipino recipes, it definitely um, crosses the divides of race, creed, or whatever. It's definitely um, brought to you with stories that people can relate to. Um, and all families. A lot of the, the authors are, are offering their stories from here, uh, trying to find ingredients here in the United States, trying to, uh, you know, have to pick different ingredients that they have to do
0: because some ingredients can be found. It's just been a journey. Well, I just love this book, The New Filipino Kitchen. And one of the things That I love about it is that there right in the very front of the many stories that are told in the book is my friend, Christina Quackenbush. And the name of your chapter is Teach a Girl to Fish. And it tells the story of how you were born in the Philippines and how you came to America. Tell us about how you've made this life journey. Well, at five, my mother met my
3: stepfather, who was a Marine. Um, He was uh, stationed over there. So uh, they got married, and I was so excited, and my mother as well was happy to move back to to the United States. We ended up in the Midwest, uh, land of corn, Indiana. So that's where I spent the next 15 years of my life when I moved there.
0: What was really so poignant about the story is— That your grandmother didn't want you to go. She wanted to keep you. Yes. Uh, My grandmother in the Philippines uh, loved me so much.
3: I was her... Uh, my mother was her only child. I was her only grandchild, so we were pretty much her only family, and she was just begged my mother. She was like, please, please leave Christy here. And she called me Christy, but uh, leave her here with me. I'll take care of her, um, but it, it was a very poor time over there. My, my family was very poor, and my what mom wanted like- better for me. It was literally the, the commercials that you see on television where the kids are in the gutters, and, the, and that was my life from the
0: first five years. Oh my goodness. And so you all came to America. You came to the Midwest. Did you see your grandmother again? Unfortunately, I never got
3: to see her again. Never. Um, that saddens my heart more than anything. Um, I, I received plenty of, she couldn't even read or write, so people had to read or write for her to send me messages. And, and she still, you know, till the day she died, which was just about five years ago that she finally, that she still would tell me she loved me and she missed me. She wished she could see me. Um, I never got a chance to see her before she died. And it's one of the biggest regrets that I have.
0: Yet. I can only imagine that you honor your grandmother and you keep her memory alive today in the food you cook. This is very true. This is
3: one of the ways that I, you know, pay homage to her and make sure that, you know, our family, even though we're in a different country that I'm representing, you know, where I came from. Um, so the food that I cook came directly from my mother. I, I obviously didn't have any other influences of the Filipino food except from my mother. And also they were, um, you know, with American ingredients, so they weren't even, you know, like they should be. All the stuff that she cooked all came from her mother. And um, she wanted to make sure to instill, you know, this these recipes and stuff in me um, and so I—that's what I did. Just just growing up, like, what is this? You know, I, I was more into the American food. And so when my mother would make that stuff, I—I I never really appreciated it. Then never, you know. I mean, it was good, and I could smell it coming home, and I loved it. But I never really appreciated it until my grandma passed. That's when I appreciated it the most.
0: And the, the name of your chapter is "To Teach a Girl to Fish," because that's a very interesting transition with Filipino food in the Midwest and. The concept of raw fish. Tell us that story. Well, in the Philippines, a lot of the, the people are fishermen.
3: Coming over to the Midwest, I didn't, and being so young, I didn't, I didn't get to appreciate the fishermen. Um, but I did get to appreciate fishing because I grew up on the Ohio River with my American uh, family, my American Irish grandmother. Um, and we literally had a camp right on the Ohio River. My grandpa would fill a whole filter thing full of like crawfish and uh, for bait, and he would drop it, and all this fish would come up, and he would—I would sit there just amazed. He would show me how to skin them, and right after he was done, he'd put a little salt on it and make them bounce around on on the table and stuff. So, uh, growing up fishing, I—I I loved it a lot. My mother always did this weird thing when we got the fish. She would always put vinegar in it, and I was just like, "Did you didn't even cook that?" You know, as a kid, I was totally like, "I can't believe that you're eating that. You, you haven't even cooked it. It's raw." Um, so I always wondered why she did that, and I never liked it at first. But you know, as a kid, your your taste buds develop. When I finally did like a, a light bulb went off, I was like, "This is actually pretty good," you know. And I would sit down, and it would be marinated. She would have tomatoes and red onion and and cucumbers, and the fish all marinated in the vinegar. And we would eat it with rice. It was just it was just a a thing my taste buds were not used to or, <laughs> or even ready for. But I was very very much happy, and then that that just came in a development over time of the recipe I finally put out.
0: Christina, how did you end up in New Orleans and how did food become your life?
3: Well that's, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to come to New Orleans because, you know, if you want to be anybody, you want to go down to New Orleans where all the different food people are, the restaurants, the chefs, that life for me was just so glamorous and I, I wanted it so bad. Um I actually studied and got a degree in computer programming but did not like it. Um, as I was going to college, I was in restaurants. So I came up in restaurants and I just loved it so much. Every aspect of the restaurant business, the food, the guests, all that stuff. Um, I really wanted to make an impact and, and just really be part of the food scene here. It was it, That's been my whole point. And from the First time I've been here, I have did nothing but food.
0: Well, you know, and, and you really have created your own footprint. I think I first became aware of you when you were doing pop-ups at Marie's down in the Marigny. Yes. You know, so tell us how your path has followed. Well, I mean, I, I, I have to give
3: one person um, complete credit for my success. Well, not complete, but he, the biggest mentor for me, and that's Adolfo Garcia when I finally came in to work for him and I was bringing food in, he's like, you know, you should, we don't have anything like this here. Isn't that weird? And I was like, yeah. So uh, next week he sends me an article from a, a restaurant in New York that's starting pop-ups. This was back in 2011 when pop-ups weren't really, yeah. you know, the thing yet. He goes, I think we should do this. And from that very first pop-up, it ignited in me like, oh my God, it's a, this is definitely something that I could do. I could go around and start doing pop-ups and at that time there wasn't very many there was pizza delicious there was the wandering buddha there was very few so yeah. it was a super exciting thing to do when i first approached marie's you know their, their kitchen was no bigger than this room it's a funny <laughs> funny place it is and it you know and it was it was just tiny and a all of us in the kitchen together, we literally had were rubbing elbows. So it was it was definitely a challenge, but, uh, you know, moving from spot to spot and to be able to make that space yours for the time being that you're there and to be able to put out really good food was was always a challenge. Um, Marie's was really a good stepping out point. That's when the neighborhood started coming together. Other restaurants in the neighborhood came down and said, why don't you pop up at my place?
0: Well, Christina, it is so wonderful to continuously find you freshly popping up here and there. Congratulations over the part you played in the new Filipino kitchen, and I cannot wait to see where you pop up next. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Poppy. It's so good being here. Christina Quackenbush of Milkfish. You'll find Milkfish popping up every Thursday night at 12 Mile Limit in New Orleans Mid City with Filipino food and karaoke. Christina is also available for private camion dinners. For more information, email her at milkfishnola at gmail.com or visit her on Instagram using the handle milkfishnola.
4: My name is Eddie Hernandez. I'm one of the owners and partner, and I do the R&D. I'm the executive chef for Taqueria del Sol in Atlanta. And I just wrote a book called Turnip Greens and Tortillas that is really going to shock people. Even
0: more shocking than Eddie Hernandez's combination of turnip greens and tortillas is how artfully he moves between Southern and Mexican foodways. Throughout his award winning career, Eddie has revolutionized the food scene in Atlanta by playing on the best aspects of his own heritage and the South's expanding culinary scene. When we sat down with Eddie in our Louisiana Eat studio, I asked him how he first got started
4: in the kitchen. Oh, there was a natural thing for me because uh, my grandmother and my mom, you know, they were excellent cooks, including my, my uncle. And it was embedded in me at a really young age how important it is to know how to cook. Uh, Not thinking business-wise later, but being able to fend for yourself.
0: One of the things I believe you've really become known for is recreating authentic Mexican street food. Tell me what makes that food so unique and special. I don't know, maybe about...
4: 10, 15 years ago, you know, when back in Atlanta, there was really nothing that resembled what we eat in Mexico. And then uh, some people started to advertise that that was authentic Mexican food, and I thought it was a lie. So one day I just said, you know, I really need to educate these people about what we actually eat in Mexico, and it's none of this stuff. So I started doing more traditional Mexican cooking, and I started teaching, doing a little bit of classes here and there, and I always talk about what we do in Mexico, what a lot of people don't understand about Mexican food. There was a movement in the mid-90s called Southwestern Cuisine, by people like, you know, Stephen Powell and uh, Dan Ferring, uh, Robert Del Grande in Houston, and it was a big success. Nobody knew that actually Mexican cuisine started in Mexico, <laughs> not in the Southwest, because we had the French living in our country for many, many years. So we learned all the sauces, uh, how to make bread, how to make pastries, how to cure meats. We learned so much from them, you know, and one Cinco de Mayo, uh, we decided that we didn't have anything else to learn, so we kick them out. <laughs> Thank you.
0: So you learned how to make French bread and all that, and then the French could go.
4: <laughs> yes. You know, and so once people started to find out that uh, we were different and that I was actually showing food that they never seen, then we started to get a lot of attention. And eventually people did their own research, and, and they found out that I was really not lying, but actually cooking what we eat. Now,
0: how important do you believe it is to make your own
4: tortillas? In, in Mexico, you have to. I mean, you know, luckily for us in Mexico, we have all these tortilla houses where they, you know, cook the corn and ground it and make their own tortillas. You can just buy kilos of now. Here in the United States, it's not that easy, even though that I'm pretty good about finding sources to make fresh tortillas. I'm sorry for what I'm gonna say, but a lot of people don't appreciate the work that goes into making fresh corn tortillas. It's like, I just did a uh, black tortillas, with uh, with la coche and squid ink for something that I wanted to test, so that type of tortilla will actually be so interesting that you're gonna have to try it, and then you're gonna go, "Wow, this tortilla is not the same." And then I will say, "Well, the white ones are the same, except they don't have the with la coche and the squid ink," and uh, then then they'll be willing to go to the white one because it's fresh and it's tasty. And so they cannot take back anything once they said that it's good. So it's going to take a little while, but we're we're in the right track, you know. Eventually, everybody will want to buy fresh tortillas.
0: So let's go back to those red beans and rice burritos. What's up with that, and how did you start making those?
4: (laughs) Uh, It's just one of those wacky days that I woke up with this thing (laughs) in the head about doing something. I like red rice and beans, you know. One of my favorite places for red rice and beans is not in Louisiana, but it's actually in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh. It's a guy native to here, uh, taught English. And he has a restaurant in, in Memphis. And, I, and my, my partner and I, we went over there for dinner one time. I don't know what we were doing. And he had red rice and beans, so I tried it. And, and they had the lard flavor that we like when we cook with lard. And I said, this thing will be killer in a burrito. I got to find a way to do it. So... I went back, and a week later, I came back with this uh, recipe with red rice and beans and, uh, and sausage to add value to the, to the dish. And I did a burrito, and then we solved it both ways. We solve it fried or just rolled.
0: I would love to hear you explain why you even called the book Turnip greens and tortillas. Why are turnip greens as iconic to you as tortillas?
4: There really wasn't It's it's a great story about the turnip greens. In 1987, we had a restaurant in the south side of Atlanta. And we had a customer named Bobby Avery and his wife, Juanita, who I really like. And one day Bobby came in and he had a, a trash bag full of turnip greens. And he says, Eddie, I want you to cook this. If anybody can make this thing famous, it's you. And I said, well, thank you, Bobby. And then then I took him to the kitchen and never did anything with it. They went bad. Oh. So the next Friday, he comes Bobby with another bag. Now I'm feeling bad. So I went to Mike and I said, Mike, what do you do with these things? (laughs) He looked at it He goes, a ton of greens. And I said, okay, what do you do with it? He goes, when you cook them, you eat them. And I said, How do you cook him, man? He says, oh, I cannot explain this to you, but you're really good about picking up flavors. Let's go to Mary Max, who's supposed to get the best sunup greens in the city. So we go there, and I go, oh, I got it's a soup. He goes, yeah, I mean... It's a soup. Yeah, and he says, well, what did you expect? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I thought that you were treating him like spinach. And uh, he said, no. I went back to that restaurant, and he explained to me that everybody uses heme hog, some bean and garden, this and then, And I started to think about some of the plants that we have in Mexico that we actually eat, like elites, and how we treat the plant. And I said, well, you know, I don't have pork stock or pork or hem hogs. So I'm gonna do it this way. And the only thing I had was chicken stock. And so I cook them the way I thought I would do them in Mexico. And I say, hey, Mike, you want to try this? And uh, he came in, and I give him a bowl, and he goes, did you write down how you made that? And I said, why? He goes, they are really good, though. They're good. And I, I end up with a big pot, and we give them away to the people at the bar. And next Friday, Bobby Promenado back, I made him again, people at the bar is going like, hey, did you get some more of those uh, turn of greens? And uh, I said, yeah. So well, can we have some? So he started giving it to them. And eventually they said, we need some cornbread.
0: Oh yeah. Cornbread and turnip. And I
4: said, oh no, 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 no. We're not going to do cornbread. Uh, in Mexico, we eat these things with tortillas. And and that's true. That's, I didn't make it up. It's just the way we will eat it. You know? And they asked for it all the time and eventually ended up putting them on the menu. And he worked 30 years later, and I have a book. I would never thought, and I always get asked about it, I said, I have no idea how important turnip greens are in the South. Mm-hmm. I I really never in my mind understood that. And now here I am, you know, being praised sometimes for for the greens, and everybody wants to make them, and, and they do it. And I was on a, in Memphis, and I had all these people from, different parts of the United States going like oh thank you for sharing the recipe you know and I had no lady that started crying because her husband used to make him all the time and, and she called him Mike's greens his name was Mike but he passed away and I was there promoting in the book and she find out who I was and she says my husband and I used to go to your restaurant in 19, you know 1993. And he loves you, Greens, you know. And can I take my picture with you? And then she started crying. And I said, I don't know, no no need to cry. I mean, I'm just so glad to share the story. It's things like that. We have uh, so many things in common, and people don't even take the time to realize how similar we are. Our cultures are basically so close to each other. And I think that's why, you know, it's people like me who really embrace the South. It actually gets rewarded with a lot of friends. And to me, that's the most important thing. I've been able to make a lot of friends.
0: Thank you so much for talking with us and helping us demystify this connection between turnip greens and tortillas. Thank you, Eddie.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me, papi. I really, really love being here.
0: Eddie Hernandez, co-owner and executive chef at Taqueria del Sol in Atlanta. Coming up next, we journey across Lake Pontchartrain to learn the story behind Dumont Artisan Kitchen in Mandeville. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Bobby Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish, fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away.
5: My name is Özgür Duman. I am the co-owner and co-chef at Duman's Artisan Kitchen together with my husband, Bulak Duman.
0: Just south of Highway 190 in Mandeville, only about 45 minutes from downtown New Orleans, you'll come across Duman Artisan Kitchen, a husband and wife collaboration producing some extraordinary fare in a beautiful setting. Influenced by Turkish, Italian, Israeli, and American cooking, Asgur and Bulant Duman offer an eclectic menu unusual for the North Shore. Louisiana Eats had the opportunity to sit down with Asgur and reflect on how the Turkish immigrants came to open Duman's artisan kitchen. Where are you all from originally and how do you happen to be here on the North Shore with this business? We are from Istanbul
5: which is a a huge melting pot of different cultures, different uh, religions and backgrounds of people, they are all there. And we have an enormous uh, cuisine in Turkey, specifically in Istanbul because all the East and West come together in a place like Istanbul. And even though we both are Turkish, my mom was married to an Israeli man, and we have been together uh, with some uh, Jewish communities all throughout my life and I was born in Germany. My mom's side comes from Greece, partially Greece, partially from Bulgaria. So uh, we have a lot going on as far as cultures and cuisine, and I am very happy of it. We are very blessed, honestly.
0: Now, of all of the places in the United States where you could choose to live, how did you all end up settling here?
5: It was a series
0: of misfortunate
5: events and coincidences. It is a like really, really long story, but I am not gonna lie, when I first ended up in Louisiana, I did not like it one bit. It was the middle of the summer. It was so hot and all the bugs and everything. But after a while, it grows on you and we fell in love and we didn't even think of moving anywhere else after that this what we have here was the dream all along so when we found this building here we actually discovered Mendeville and we fell in love with Mendeville as well the people are amazing here they are very kind and friendly and accepting and it was probably the best decision of our lives to come to Mendeville with this business.
0: And how long ago was it that you came to the United States? So how long, and how long have you been at this restaurant game?
5: Well, uh, we have been in the States for uh, a little over 10 years. And ever since then, we have been in pizza business one way or another. So. All this is an accumulation of all the experience of doing pizza for 10 years.
0: Why pizza? I think that is so <laughs> fascinating because I think it's fairly common somehow for people to come to the United States and all different nationalities often end up with pizza. What is it? How did that happen? Well, uh, the thing is, people
5: know pizza as a strictly Italian food, which is not really the case. Pretty much everywhere in the European region, they have their own kind of pizza. We have pide in Turkey. It's exactly the same thing as a pizza. It's just not round. It's kind of like a football shape. Even though pizza is famous of being Italian, Turkey is also, like among ourselves, we are known for our pide, so it's not an unfamiliar product for our cuisine. Did I ever think that I would end up having a pizza place? Honestly, no. We both come from backgrounds of being professional office people. I did cook all my life, my husband did cook all his life, but we did not do it professionally before. We, again, just by some series of coincidences, we found ourselves working with a friend in a pizza business, and we just fell in love with it. We loved what we were doing, and uh, we tried to better it, perfect it. Honestly, when we first opened this place, Uh, with our new oven we had to adjust our recipe and when we hit this recipe that we have right now I cried when we made our first pizza I was like yes this is what I have been dreaming for this is what we were trying to do so
0: I know pizza is a large part of your business but there's so much more because I read your menu and There's all sorts of delicious things, everything from Italian classics to gyros and hummus.
5: Yes, well, uh, our background is Turkish, so we are trying to incorporate some of our cultural food in what we are doing, Um, also with the Italian classics like the lasagna. It is a an class, Italian classic, but the lasagna that we're making here is actually my mom's recipe, who is Turkish. So our meatballs, uh, that's why we have the arugulas and the hummus. The hummus is also my uh, mom's ex-husband's recipe. It's a family recipe from Israel. So, it is Italian and pizza, but we try to put a little bit of a spin to it, incorporating
0: our heritage as well. You know, anybody would say, oh, the life of a small restaurant owner.
3: Oh,
5: don't get me
0: started. I'd like to know, what's life like for you and your husband?
5: Well, I tell this to everybody who would listen, friends, and uh, everybody who is jealous of uh, the thing that we have here. People say, oh, I want to have a small cafe. I want to open a restaurant. What I tell them is if you are not absolutely in love and passionate about what you are doing, then don't because this is not a sane person thing to do. I'm not kidding. It is long hours, hard work, like physical labor. There is a saying in the restaurant industry, what do you call a chef's wife, you call her an ex. Because, uh, I mean, we are very fortunate to be doing this together. Uh, You have no special days, no New Year's, no Valentine's Day, no Mother's Day, no nothing. You are always working. So it is hard. We are closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. Nothing is happening on Mondays and Tuesdays. So you have a very rough social life. You're working on the weekends where all the festivals are happening, the concerts, the sports events. You're working. But... We love what we're doing, so it is worth every second of it, every tear, sweat, and blood that goes into
0: it. That was Osgur Duman, co-owner and co-chef of Duman Artisan Kitchen. it for this week's edition of louisiana eats edible content for louisiana food lovers catch up on previous editions of louisiana eats on poppytooker.com where over a decade of louisiana eats is available for pod and webcasting along with recipes and cooking class videos too and don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mullidoo. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.